Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. My favorite part about uh, Tim's mic going out was uh, that Carl came and adjusted it and left it high. So when it finally came back on, he had to get up on his tippy toes. And that just, that caused my heart to rejoice. So that was the most worshipful part of that for me. Uh, If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1 in a pretty uh, aggressive text. Uh, While you're turning there, I want to start with a little illustration. So I I don't know what you wanted to be when you grew up. So if you ask a little kid what they want to be when they grow up, sometimes they'll give you all kinds, I mean, they'll give you all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they want to be something they physically can't be. So you'll be like, little Jimmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he'll be like, I want to be a dinosaur, right? Probably not going to happen, right? It's very competitive to get into dinosaur school, and there's a lot of administrative stuff, and so that's probably not going to happen. Other times, kids want to be something that seems like a great job at the time, but might not actually be. So I've got a buddy, and his son, more than anything in the world, wants to be a trash man. Why? Because little boys love trash trucks. And so one day he went outside to uh, look at the trash truck because it was going down his street with his son, and they waved at the trash man, and the trash man waved back and said this, aim for something higher. That's what he did, right? Which I thought was pretty awesome. When I was a kid, what I wanted to be more than anything in the world was a spy. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a spy. I would watch spy movies. I would read spy books. Uh, At one point, I was watching like a James Bond movie every day. There was even a girl in middle school that I thought was attractive that I wanted to go up and try to impress, and so I did so in a very James Bondish way, which she thought was super weird, and she never went out with me. But I wanted to be a spy more than anything in the world until I ran into an ethical quandary. Spies sometimes have to kill people, right? You can get a license to kill if you're James Bond. What does that look like? Is that ethical? Is that okay because you're an agent of the government and not just some individual? What, what was the answer? So I ended up not being a spy, and here I am today. But maybe I'm really one undercover, but you'll never know because I'm a good spy. And, uh, but that was the, the ethical quandary I had as a kid. Well, what Romans 13 is going to do is it's going to briefly give us an overview of the role of government and it's going to give us an overview of the use of force. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on this, but this is what the text is going to deal with today, and it is a tough and aggressive text. And so I'm not going to try to do anything out of shock value, but I do want to say things uh, that are hard that the the text says. So let's pray, and then we will get into verse 1. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for your goodness, and just ask that you would uh, guide us, that you would protect us, that you would uh, help us focus our thoughts on you. Uh, I pray even in a sermon like this that's mainly practical, mainly about the government, that you would help us focus on the gospel, that we're saved and forgiven and loved only because of Christ. And I ask that you would uh, help us keep our eyes focused on Christ, even as we learn what it looks like to honor him uh, in our relationship to the state. So we ask it in his name. Amen. All right, let's get into this text. Verse 1a starts with this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Here's the first command. We're going to get right out of the gate this morning. Here's what it is. Ready? Submit to your governmental leaders and obey the laws. Okay? Thus saith the Lord. This is a biblical command that the Bible is giving us. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. Okay? That we are to obey, we are to submit to, we are to honor the governmental authorities, and we are to keep the laws that they make. When I say law in this sermon, by the way, I mean something different than we've typically used that word in Romans. Typically, when the Apostle Paul says law in Romans, he means Old Testament rules. He means Mosaic law. Here, he's talking about the law of the land. He's talking about the state. He's talking about governmental regulations. And the Bible is going to say, as Christians, you must keep those. Okay? Now, if you're instantly saying, when do I not have to keep them? 
Okay? If you're already going there in your mind, well, when do I get to rebel? Okay? Stop thinking that for right now. We're going to deal with that towards the end of the sermon, but right now I want this text to hit you. I want you to hear what this text has to say. This is always a difficult text to teach to Americans because we are a country founded upon rebelling against the government when we think the government oversteps its bounds. Okay? So before we get into that, we'll get into it at the end, I just want this text to hit you where it says to obey the governing authorities. Obey the governing authorities, keep the laws that they make. Now, this isn't the only place that says this. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 1 Peter 2.13-15, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The Bible is extremely clear that one of the commands Christ gives us is to obey our governmental leaders. Not only that, the Bible will also tell us to honor them. Here's some more. Exodus 22:28. 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Ecclesiastes 10:20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air, Twitter, I'm going to take that to mean Twitter, will carry your voice or some winged creature tell of the matter. Okay? So let me ask this question. How's our culture doing on this? How are Christians doing on this? Okay? Now, let me, let me say something, and I'm going to critique both sides, left and right, Republican and Democrat, wherever you land today, that way the point of the Bible comes across because the Bible is an equal, equal opportunity hater, and here's what the Bible's going to say, okay? So I'll give you both examples. When Barack Obama was president, I had friends who were Christians that did not like him, and I had to say to them, you can disagree with him, you can show where his policies might not be biblical, you can try to vote him out of office, but what you can't do is you can't curse at him, you cannot be disrespectful, and you can't look like the world on this. Okay? Today, I have friends who are Christians who don't like Trump, and I have to say the same thing. You can critique him. You can point out if some of his policies are unbiblical. You can try to vote him out of office. But what you can't do is mudsling. What you can't do is name call. You can't look like the rest of the world. So this text is not saying that you have to agree with your governmental leaders. It's not saying that you can't critique them or vote against them or write articles about places, views that they hold that are unbiblical. What it's saying is as you do so, you have to do so as a Christian. You have to do so in an honorable way. You can critique, but you can't slander. You can point out what's wrong, but you can't name call. That's the idea, that we are to honor our governmental leaders. And it doesn't matter whether or not you like them because you're honoring the office, not necessarily the person. A wife submits to her husband not because he's a great guy, but because he's in the office of her husband. You submit to a police officer not because he's a nice guy. You might not know who he is. You, he might not be a nice guy. You're submitting to the uniform. You're submitting to the office. You might not like governors or senators or whatever, but you respect the office even if you don't like the people. And I mean that regardless of who's in office. We're commanded to pray for leaders whether you are left or right. Okay? I realize as I say left, that's everyone else's right. But you know what I mean. Okay? You know what I mean. Okay? Now notice this next phrase here. It says, let every person, what's the next phrase? What is it? Be subject. Now, let me tell you why that's interesting. Here in Greek, the Apostle Paul doesn't use the typical word for obey, okay? He uses a different phrase in Greek, which is this idea of be subject. Now, let me tell you why I think that he does that. 
I think the idea of being subject is this general posture, this heart posture of submission and honor. It's not that there are never times to disobey the government. We are allowed to disobey the government if they ask us to sin, okay? God always trumps, trumps the government, period, okay? Always. And so there are times where we have to disobey the government if they're asking us to sin, which is why I think the Apostle Paul uses this phrase here, to be subject, that we are to try to be submitting, we are to try to be honoring, even though there are times where we will have to disobey. So when do you get to break the law? When do you not have to submit to a particular law? And it's only if it asks you to sin. Not if you don't like it, not if you just think it's unjust, but if it asks you to sin. So if the government says, wear your seatbelt, you wear your seatbelt. If the government comes up to me and says, Zach, I want you to perform a gay wedding, I will not do that because that is sin. If the government asks me to pay taxes, I pay taxes, okay? If the government says, Zach, I personally want you to commit an abortion, I will not do that, okay? We see this not from Romans 13, but in doing whole Bible theology. In the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to worship this statue when they hear this music playing, and they don't because they honor God. That is a sinful command, okay, that the government's giving them. Daniel is commanded not to pray to his God, and yet he continues to pray to God. The apostles in the book of Acts are beaten and told not to preach about Christ anymore, and they say we must obey God rather than man. Okay? So I think the reason that Paul is saying be subject here is there are times where you're not to follow a certain law, but even in doing that, you should, in a sense, grieve. You should not be wanting to rebel against the government. Hermann Bavink, one of the greatest reformed systematic theologians of the modern era, says this, the gospel is not a revolutionary force, but a spiritual and reforming one. It acknowledges and honors all legitimate authority rooted in creation's institutions and opposes only the sin and deception found in all areas of life. Verses 1b through 2. Let's keep going. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, okay? Now, let me say this as strongly as I can say this. Who put Hitler in power biblically? God did. Who put Stalin in power biblically? God did. Every ruler who has ever ruled on the face of the earth has been put in power by God. Now, let me clarify some things. That doesn't mean that they're good people. That doesn't mean that what they say or do is good. They will be judged, and like teachers, they will be judged more harshly, okay? The point of this text is not to say if someone's in office, therefore they're good and their policies are good. That's not the point. It's to say that God is so sovereign that even when he ordains an evil leader or he ordains a good ruler, God is still the one who has ultimate authority. God is still the one who has ultimate authority, okay? Now, what some people will say is, okay, Zach, I get it. We're supposed to submit to the government unless the government's not being good. The government's job is to protect the people and preserve their rights and their freedoms. And so when the government stops doing that, then I can rebel, right? There's two big problems I have with that line of reasoning from these verses here, okay? The first is I want you to see how universal this text is. It says, for there is no authority, meaning anywhere on earth except from God, and those that exist, all of them that exist, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists, anyone in the world who resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist, all of them, will incur judgment. He's not here making exceptions. He is saying to rebel against the government wherever you are, in a sense, is to rebel against God. Now, here's the other problem, okay? 
So if, let, let's say when Paul is writing, he had a really good ruler. There's a really good Roman emperor named Todd or something like this, and he was happy, and he loved Christians, and he cared for people, and Paul said, submit to the government. We might assume that we only have to submit to the government if the government is being good. Here's the problem. Do you know who is in authority when the Apostle Paul is writing Romans? He is one of the most notorious leaders in world history. It's a guy by the name of Nero. You ever heard of Nero? This blonde-haired, blue-eyed, crazy person in Rome, okay? Nero is the worst. Nero killed his mom. He killed his brother. He killed his first wife, and he killed his second wife by kicking her to death while she was pregnant, okay? He was a pervert. He was a pedophile. I won't go into detail there because there are uh, kids and stuff in the audience. Uh, He partook in two gay marriages, one in which he played the role of the groom, one in which he played the role of the bride. He had Christians killed. He fed Christians to the lions. He would have Christians wrapped in animal skins so that wild beasts would tear them apart. He, uh, Jeff mentioned this in a sermon last week, he used to take Christians, cover them in tar, put them up on spikes, and light them on fire to light his garden parties. Can you imagine sitting there at a garden party sipping your tea while people are burning to provide the light? That's Nero, okay? He most likely is the reference to the beast given in the book of Revelation. And now look at me. Here's what Paul says. He was put there by God. Not that he's good. Not that his policies are good. Not that there's some policies that shouldn't be resisted. But God is so sovereign that God is sovereign over good and sovereign over evil, even though God doesn't do evil, okay? So if you're saying, well, Zach, we only submit to the government unless the government's not doing a great job, Nero is the problem with that argument, okay? That's a big problem. Now, are there times where things can get so bad that you might be able to rebel? You've got to wait for the end. Get that thought out of your mind. Dear Americans, get that thought out. Hear what the Bible says first. Let the Bible cut you and then let it heal you, okay? So I want you to hear how strong this text is today. Now look at verse 2. It says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what... Uh, God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Here's what this text is saying. When you rebel against the state, when you break civil laws, you are rebelling against God as well. To rebel against the state is to rebel against God. That's what this text is saying. And if you do so, there's a warning here that there will be judgment. There will be judgment. Verses 3 through 4a. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now we're given a second reason why. So the command was to obey the government. Then we were given a reason why, because God is the one that institutes government. Now we're given a second reason that you should obey the government, and it's to avoid fear and anxiety. So I'll give you an example. Let's say I'm driving down the road, and I have my driver's license. I'm driving the speed limit. My car registration's up to date and a police officer pulls behind me, okay? Now, I might think he might pull me over for a busted taillight or something like that, but I don't get super nervous, okay? Now imagine that I'm driving down the road, and I am stone-cold drunk. I've just been doing drugs. Uh, I have Tim. I beat up Tim and bound him and threw him in my trunk, okay? I stole money from the church. I went to the offering box, stole all the money, and put it in the side uh, seat there, the passenger seat, and now a police officer pulls behind me. Do I feel different? I feel super different, right? So this text is saying, if you want to avoid fear and anxiety of the government, then do what's right. Then do what's right. But there's something else here that I think is really interesting. Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. For he is God's servant for your good. When you see a judge 
when you see a police officer, when you see a soldier, when you see a Marine, when you see these kind of things, you need to think in your mind, that is a servant of God. Doesn't mean they're even a Christian. Doesn't mean they're saved. They could be a total atheist. But in their role of suppressing evil, God is using them in a good way, even if they're terrible people. Okay? That the office in and of itself has honor because it is blessed by God. And God calls them servants. God calls them servants. So let me say it this way. We have a tendency, just as humans, because of our sin, to hate authority. Okay? Authority is not bad. It's good for kids to have parents. It's good to have laws. Government is not bad. Bad government is bad. Okay? Anarchy is not a biblical position. So you'll hear people say, oh, I hate the government. Typically what they mean is they hate a big federal government. They don't mean that they hate all government. Okay? Government, according to the Bible, is a gift from God. What would the world look like if all of a sudden today, every police officer went on strike, everyone in the military went on strike, and it just said, fend for yourselves? It would be chaos. So anybody could shoot you, they could assault you, they'd be breaking into your house, there'd be mass looting. It would be insane. And God's gracious gift to restrain the evil of humanity is the government, or those who bear the sword. Let me put it this way. So down the hall, we have our kids in preschool, okay? Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but we also have adults there to watch them. That's a really big key of our ministry here for the kids. We have background-trained adults, or background-checked adults, who are trained to care for the kids. What would happen if we didn't have that? What happens if we just have all the kids in one big room, and we just throw some Skittles on the floor, and hope for the best, right? It would be like baby hunger games. You would go in there, and they've separated into tribes, and they've got war paint on, and they've taken their little toys and whittled them down into shivs, and they've built a campfire in the corner. It would be insane. It is a grace, and it is a gift to have authority in there that can say, stop biting that kid. They can say, you go play in that corner. Don't take his toy. That is a gift. And that's what Paul is saying. This government, though it can be abused, though it is often bad, in and of itself is a good thing, okay? Is a good thing. Now, look at verse 4b. I'm going to spend the most of the time here because this is the one that's most misunderstood uh, by non-Christians and Christians alike. Verse 4b, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Verse 4b starts with this. Look at this phrase, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Now, here's why I love that. Most of the time, the Bible will say, do not be afraid, do not fear, do not have anxiety. But here it gives you an exception. If you're breaking the law, you better be afraid. If you're breaking the law, if you're some sort of criminal, you better be afraid. And it continues. Look at this. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, let me explain what that means, okay? Because this idea of the government bearing the sword, we get in a lot of other places in Greek literature as well. So I want to explain what this means. What Paul is saying is, the government has the right to punish evil up to and including killing people. The government has the right to punish evil up to and including killing people. Okay? I don't know how much you know about swords. You don't use them for spanking, right? Like you don't turn it on its side and accidentally lop somebody's leg off. Swords are not used for farming. Swords are not typically used for hunting. Swords are made to be used on people. Okay? And so this text is saying that the government has that right. So we need to step back for a second and explain something that a lot of people are very confused on. Okay, let's do a little pop quiz. Is sex good or bad? All kinds? 
Ah, yes, so it's good in some contexts, like in a heterosexual monogamous marriage, but bad in every other context. Sex is kind of morally neutral. Some cases of sex are good, and some are bad. You with me? Is yelling good or bad? Well, it depends. Are you yelling at your spouse in a fight because that's bad? Or are you yelling for somebody to watch out because they're going to get hit by a car? There it's good. Okay? Now let me give you another thing that is the same kind of thing. Is violence good or bad? The answer is both. We have a tendency to think that all violence is bad. That's not a biblical idea. There is good violence and there is bad violence. Notice that in World War II, the Nazis used violence and the Allies used violence, but they are not the same. Okay? The Allies used righteous violence, whereas the Nazis used unrighteous violence. Notice there are different kinds of violence. Some are good and biblical, some are bad and evil, and you have to understand they're different. People always want to lump those things together as if it's the same thing. So I was reading two statistics earlier that I thought were really unhelpful. One of them was on inner city violence. You know why that's an unhelpful statistic? Because it doesn't tell me whether or not someone was defending themselves or whether or not they were attacking somebody. All violence is not the same. I read another statistic of police shootings. Do you know why that's irrelevant? Because it doesn't tell me whether or not the person should have been shot or they should not have been shot. It just lumps it all in together. Okay? There's righteous violence and there is unrighteous violence and they are not the same. You will sometimes have somebody ask you this question if you're a Christian. They'll say, how can you be pro-life but also be pro-capital punishment or pro-killing in war? And what we have to explain is this. The just taking of life by the state when they kill, for example, a terrorist, is different than the unjust murdering of life by an individual. Do you see the difference? We as Christians are not pro-life, we're pro-innocent life. What do you mean innocent? I don't mean spiritually innocent, we're all born guilty. What I mean is legally innocent. We as Christians are pro-legally innocent life. We believe in killing in some cases, but not killing in other cases, okay? Well, Zach, doesn't the Old Testament say thou shall not kill? No, that's a bad translation that is kind of left over from the King James Version, one of the reasons we use the ESV. That what it says in Hebrew is that thou shall not murder. That's the command. It can't mean thou shall not kill because God immediately turns around and tells them to go kill all the Canaanites and then to institute capital punishment in the Mosaic Law. Okay? But also, that's not what the word means. The word there that's used is ratzach in Hebrew. It means to murder or slay. It's used 49 times in the Old Testament. Not once is it used for killing in war. It's used for things like manslaughter. It's used for things like murder. The Bible commands not, no unjust killing, not no killing ever. Okay? Well, Zach, doesn't Jesus tell us to turn the other cheek? Listen, yes, in our role as Christians, if someone insults us, we turn the other cheek. That's what Jeff talked about last week. Last week it was, you don't have a right to an act of vengeance. This week in the text is, the government does. Okay? So if someone comes up to me and they spit on me and curse at me and backhand me, that's the idea, by the way, of turning the other cheek. That's why it says strike him on his right cheek. The idea is a backhand. It's an insult. If somebody comes up and backhands me and curses at me, you know what I'm commanded to do? I'm commanded to turn the other cheek. Amen? Amen. Now pretend for a second that I'm a Christian police officer and someone comes up and backhands me across the face. Now I have an oblig obligation in my role as an agent of the state to arrest that person. We as Christians live under two kingdoms. We wear two hats. We're a part of the kingdom of the church, Christ's kingdom, and we are a part of the state, and we do some things in one role that are different than in the other. When I baptize, I don't baptize someone on behalf of America, okay, in the name of George Washington and a bald eagle and the Statue of Liberty. You say, I don't do that, right? 
I baptize in the name of Christ. And when, if I decide to enroll in the military and go fight terrorism or, terrorism or something like that, I do that in my role as an American, not in my role as a Christian. Okay? So you need to understand that we're always both. You're always in both spheres, and it's okay to be in both spheres. They don't contradict each other, but you need to know what hat you're wearing at that time, if that makes sense to you. Well, Zach, what about where uh, Peter draws his sword and strikes off the ear of the uh, servant of the high priest, and Jesus rebukes him and says that those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. The context of that passage is really important. He's not talking about self-defense. He's not talking about being a police officer. What Jesus is saying there is that the gospel is not spread by the sword. His kingdom does not come through violence. His kingdom comes through the preaching of the word. It comes through evangelism. It comes through those kind of things, okay? Jesus is not making a statement about what the government should do. He's saying that the way the Messiah brings about his kingdom is by going through a cross, not by rising up and fighting against the Romans and the Jews, okay? Some people will say, Zach, this is just a passage that says that the government does bear the sword, but it doesn't mean that Christians can because maybe it's actually bad. Well, the problem with that argument is that it's speaking of these agents of the state positively. It's saying when they bear the sword to suppress evil, they're God's servants, which it calls them God's servants multiple times, okay? So I say all of that simply to say this, okay? The Bible commands the state at times to use violence to suppress what is evil, to use righteous violence to suppress unrighteous violence. I don't know if you know how we won World War II. We, we prayed. We tried to reason with them, but eventually more violence that was good overwhelmed bad violence that had less power, okay? That's how it was won. So what I want to do is I want to show you some places in the Bible where this is commanded. So what I want to do is this. I want to show you some places in the Bible where humans are commanded to take life. I'm going to show you a passage before the giving of the Mosaic Law, several in the Mosaic Law, and then others even in the New Testament. You'll hear some people say, well, Zach, that's not something Christians can do today. That's just something we had in the Old Testament. And I have to say two things. One, we're still under the Old Testament. It's called the Bible, okay? What we're not under is the Mosaic Law, those 613 commands given to Israel. But I want to show you a passage that occurs before Moses even exists. I want to show you some passages in the Mosaic Law and in the New Testament to show you this is the consistent heart of God. Genesis 9-6, <clears throat> before the giving of the law. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. You ever heard anybody say something like this? It's man can't take life, only God can take life. Well, that's a funny comment because here God is commanding that humans take the life of other humans. By man shall his blood be shed. It's this institution of capital punishment, okay? Look in the Mosaic Law, Exodus 21, 12. I'll show you one of capital punishment. I'll show you one of killing and war, and I'll show you one of self-defense. Exodus 21, 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Notice that you do fight violence with more violence, but of a righteous kind. Deuteronomy 7.2, part of the Canaanite genocide, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Okay? Exodus 22, 2 through 3, talking about self-defense. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. Here's what this means. Let me give you a little uh, hint of uh, Texas law that is based on this passage, okay? In Texas, if you come home in the daytime 
and there is someone in your home and they are not threatening you, they do not have a weapon, and they're like headed out your door, you cannot just shoot them. Did you know that? According to Texas Penal Code 9. But if it's at night, you can shoot someone in your house because you don't know what's going on. You don't know if they are on drugs. You don't know if they have a weapon. You don't know if they're there to assault you. That's what this passage is about. It's saying if someone breaks into your house and you can do something else and not hurt them, that's great. The sun is up. You can see they don't have a weapon. Great. But if the sun has set and you don't know, you're not guilty. Okay? Romans 13, 4. Let's look in the New Testament. Two places. For he, the governing magistrate we just saw, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 1 Peter 2, 13-14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil. Notice that, punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Okay? What this text is saying and what the Bible will consistently say is that some violence is good, some violence is bad, and that the government has the right to take life in capital punishment and in war. By the way, you have to hold those two together. I've met people who think, yeah, the government can kill in war, but not capital punishment. Capital punishment is where the, governor, or the government kills criminals in your state, and war is when the government kills criminals in another state, okay, or in another nation. It's the same thing. You have to hold the same views there. You can't hold one view and not the other. They're mutually, logically consistent, okay? Now look at this last sentence. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Look at this last sentence. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That is the primary role of government given in Romans 13. The role of government is not to make your life great and make you happy. That's Jesus' job. The role of government is not to give you everything that you need or even care for the poor or the immigrant. That's the church's job. The role of government in Romans 13 is to suppress evil men so that you can go about your life. It has a negative rights function more than a positive rights function. So what I want to do in light of this last little verse here in uh, verse 4, I want to show you some different ways that people have thought how the government should use violence or how the government should go to war throughout world history. I'm going to give you four different views. We're going to do a little theology. I'm going to give you four views. Only one of these is biblical. Okay? So let me go through the views. Sometimes in world history, people have held this idea of holy war. People have held this idea of holy war. Holy war is the idea that the government can go to war not for governmental or administrative purposes, but rather to support some cause of God, okay? That's the idea of holy war. Not where the government goes to war for political or humanitarian reasons, but to support some cause of God. An example of that is the Crusades, where the church slash state is mobilized to fight the Muslims. That's holy war. It's the modern-day uh, notion of Islamic jihad, holy war. It's also what you get uh, when you have uh, the uh, Spanish wars against the natives of South America to try to convert them to Catholicism. That's the idea of holy war, where you're going to war to support some cause of God. That is not a biblical view of when the government can use violence. Okay? The next is a view called realism. It's a view called realism. Realism is this idea that when it comes to war, in a sense, morality just goes out the door. War is sloppy, war is messy, people are going to be hurt, so you can't judge a war by the normal standards of morality that you would during peacetime. A realist is someone who thinks that wars are amoral, they're amoral. You can't judge them by normal peacetime activities and normal peacetime ways of judging morality. 
A realist is someone who says this at the end of the day. If we go to war, we just have to do whatever we can to win. Who cares about what crimes we commit along the way? This is the view of those like Niccolo Machiavelli. If you've ever read The Prince, this is very Machiavellian. Do whatever you have to do to win. Feign righteousness, step on people, kill people, make them afraid of you. Do whatever you have to to win. This is the view of a guy, uh, and I'll give you a little, little history here. In the Civil War, there was a Union general named William T. Sherman. William Tecumseh Sherman. By the way, if any of you women are pregnant and uh, thinking of a name for your little boy, I highly recommend Tecumseh. All right, that's a good one. And William T. Sherman and his troops marched through Georgia towards the end of the war and uh, all the way to the sea. Okay? Now, they committed a bunch of war crimes as they did so. They burned Atlanta to the ground. Union uh, soldiers raped southern women. They burnt people's houses and committed all these war crimes. When he was asked about that later, he said... Somebody was talking to him, and they said, wait a second, you did all these things on your march to the sea. How could you do that? How could you live with yourself? And what Sherman said was this, war is hell. War is hell. This is just what it looks like. The rules go out the window when there's war. This is just what war looks like. That's realism. That is not a Christian position. Okay? That is not a Christian position. The third view is what is called pacifism. Pacifism. The idea that all violence... Even self-defense or war is immoral in every circumstance. Pacifism is the idea that all violence, even self-defense or war, is immoral in every circumstance. Okay? These people would disagree with this bifurcation that I've made of righteous and unrighteous violence. By the way, I, I haven't met very many true pacifists. So what I'll say if I, if I find out someone is a pacifist, I'll say, okay, so someone breaks into your house and they're attacking your wife. What do you do? And they'll say, well, I'm not going to shoot them, but I'll probably kick them off my wife. And I say, well, wait a second. Jesus' command to turn the other cheek says nothing about shooting. If you're going to be a true pacifist, you can't physically do anything. You can't use any type of violence, no matter how benign it might be. So you meet very few true pacifists. But pacifism is the idea that all use of violence is bad always. Okay? All use of violence is bad always. It's not held much in church history. It's held by a few early church fathers who don't really know how they interact with a pagan Roman government. And it's used by this weird borderline cult that breaks off of the Reformation known as Anabaptism, the Anabaptist, okay? The Anabaptist thought that you could not go to war, you could not kill in self-defense. Now, to their credit, at least they were consistent in that they said, if you cannot take life as a Christian, you also can't serve in government at all. That's what they said. You can't say, well, I'm not going to be a police officer and shoot somebody, but I'm going to be a mayor over a police force. I'm not going to be in the army, but I'll be the president and be the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. If you are in government, your hands are dirty. And at least the Anabaptists realize that consistency. That if you're a pacifist, not only can you not fight, you can't serve an American government. Okay? Modern thinkers include those such as Leo Tolstoy, Greg Boyd, Shane Claiborne, Stanley Hauerwas, John Howard Yoder. Now let me say some strong things about pacifism. I used to hold pacifism when I was in college, and I've changed my mind. Okay? I think that not only is pacifism unbiblical, I think that it is outright evil. I think that it is demonic because it parades around as an angel of light. Let's just love people. Let's not stop evildoers. Let's not stop evil people. Let's just let genocide happen and just act like that's going to be okay because we're so peaceful. That is evil. If someone comes in a movie theater and starts shooting people and you have the ability to stop them and you don't, you are not loving your brother. You are not loving all those people around you who are getting shot. If a nation is having some evil ruler that's genociding their people and you don't step in, you are guilty. I think pacifism is unbiblical and evil. Let me give you a quote about it by Martin Luther, spearhead of the Reformation. 
If anyone attempted to rule the world by the gospel and to abolish all temporal law and the sword on the plea that, according to the gospel, there shall be among them no law or sword or the need for either, pray tell me, friend, what would he be doing? He would be loosing the ropes and chains of the savage wild beasts and letting them bite and mangle everyone, meanwhile insisting that they were harmless, tame, and gentle creatures. But I would have the proof in my wounds. Just so would the wicked, under the name of Christian, abuse evangelical freedom, carry on their rascality, and insist that they were Christians subject neither to law nor sword, as some are already raving and ranting. What Luther is saying is for the people that just say, we don't need sword, we don't need government, we'll just be really holy Christians. He says, that's not holy. God has commanded the government to bear the sword to suppress unrighteousness. Okay? I uh, was listening to a Christian podcast recently, and there was uh, someone on the podcast that was basically saying how we didn't need any weapons today because we won't need them in heaven. That was his argument. And I thought, that's really strange. You know what else we need now that we won't have in heaven? Marriage, repentance, police, firefighters, lawyers, counselors, the sun, S-U-N. There's a lot of things we really need right now that one day we won't need. You can't have an over-realized eschatology. We live in the overlap of the ages. The kingdom is already and not yet. Lastly, I'll give you the fourth view. This is uh, my view, but this is also the view of the majority of church history, Catholic, Protestant, and Greek Orthodox. It is what's known as just war theory. Just war theory. Here's what just war theory teaches. There are justifiable times to go to war, but the war must meet certain criteria and must be waged in a humanitarian way. It does not seek to prevent war, but to limit war. Just war theory says there are times where the government, even Christians in the government, can go to war, but it has to meet certain criteria. Now, I don't have time to give you that criteria. I've got a lesson on it. Eventually, I'd love to teach in theological equipping, but uh, when I practiced my sermon, it was an hour and 20 minutes, and so I had to cut out a lot of stuff, okay? But the point of just war theory is this, that there are times where it is right for the government to go to war, but it has to meet certain criteria. It has to, uh, your, your actions have to be morally right, and the enemy's morally wrong. It has to be declared by a competent authority. There are all these criteria that it should meet, okay? What Augustine says on just war theory is this. We do not seek peace in order to be at war, but we go to war that we may have peace. Be peaceful, therefore, in warring, so that you may vanquish those whom you war against and bring them to the prosperity of peace. Here's what he's saying. There's another famous thinker in the Middle Ages, a guy named Thomas Aquinas, and here's something he says about war, which I think is fascinating. He says, the Christian can go to war, but we do not fight our enemies out of hate. We go to war for the people that we love that our enemies are hurting. So the Christian can go to war, but we don't do so because we hate our enemies. We do so because we love the people that are being oppressed. So there is a way to go to war and still do so from a motivation of love. That's what he's saying, okay? So just to wrap up this little section, and then we'll get to another section, and I'll tell a joke because there's just a lot of tension in here. Everybody take a big breath. Uh, Okay, what does this look like then? What does it look like if you are a Christian in the military? Let me answer that question, because I've got buddies in the military and combat roles, and they will say, I'm a Christian. What does this look like for me? Let me give you a three-step process if you are a Christian in the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or whatever it is, okay? First thing you have to ask before you go to battle is this. Is this a righteous reason? You have to ask that. You can't just follow orders as a Christian. You can't do what the Nazis did at the Nuremberg trials and say, well, we were just following orders. You always have to be a thinking soldier or a thinking Marine or a thinking airman, whatever it is. That's the first question you have to ask. You might get court-martialed for disobeying an order, okay? Once you realize, though, that this is a just reason to fight, 
The next thing you need to do is you need to go in as a professional and you need to do your job and you need to do it well. You are not sinning if you are in a righteous war and you're a Christian and you have to use righteous violence. So get ready. Put on your boots. Put on your plate carrier. Load up your magazines. Get a combat load. Get your medical. Bring extra gear. Two is one. One is none. Load your rifle. Pull back your charging handle. Make sure around cycles. Close your dust cover. Load your sidearm. Press check it. Make sure you're good to go. Sharpen your knife. Do whatever you have to do to get ready. And when you go in, you hit the enemy and you hit them hard. You do not fight with one hand behind your back. Being a Christian in battle does not mean you fight as a wimp. You go in and you be a professional and you do your job and you stop the enemy as a professional. And then, the third step, when you go home that night, you know what you do? You kneel down beside your bed and you cry and you beg for Jesus to come back. And you long for a day where we can beat our rifles into plowshares and our handguns into pruning hooks. That's what you do. That's the tension you feel as a Christian. You have to do a job because you love people you're protecting, not because you hate your enemy. You should be praying for your enemy. God, please convert these people. Please let these people lay down their arms so this doesn't have to happen. This is the last resort. You do that, and then you ask for Christ to come back. Because one day there will be no violence at all. We live in the overlap of the ages where there's both peace and violence. But one day there will be no more violence like that. Okay? Verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Okay? Also for the sake of conscience. Now, what he's saying here is not only should you obey the government so something bad doesn't happen to you, but you should also do so for a positive reason. Before I say that, though, I want you to see this. Do you see where it says God's wrath? In Greek, the word God is not there. It literally just says wrath. It was actually the same thing it said actually in verse 4. Your ESV translators have put God's wrath, whereas I think the most immediate context is talking about is the wrath of the state. That's the context of those who bear the sword to punish evil. You're under their wrath. Now, why have your translators put the word God there? Because the two go together. The Bible's already said that when you rebel against the state, you're rebelling against God. So when you fall under the wrath of the state, you also fall under the wrath of God. That's why it says that. But it gives us another reason, not just so that we don't get punished, but because of the sake of conscience. What does that mean? It's saying because you're a Christian, because you know that you're supposed to be doing what's right, that you're supposed to be honoring Christ, okay? So now I'm going to tell a little story to alleviate some of the pressure in here and get some laughs because the last thing I said about being in the military was super too strong, okay? Not too strong, biblically strong, but strong. I'm going to tell you about a dream I had. You ready? Okay. A few days ago, I had a dream, and Carl was in my dream. Now, just to be clear, I don't typically dream about Carl, but he happened to be in my dream. We were walking up these stairs in some abandoned building, and uh, I was stressed, as I normally am, and Carl was really chill. Carl, in real life, is very chill. And so we're walking up the stairs, and I get to the top of the stairs, and there are like three birds flocked on this window. And I'm like, Carl, look at those weird birds. And he's like, yeah, man, they're weird. And he's just real chill, real chill. And we keep walking along, and then all of a sudden, an enormous eagle comes through the door, okay? When I say enormous, he was up to my chest. This enormous eagle walks in the door. I'm like, Carl, look at that huge bird. And he's like, yeah, that bird is huge. He's just chill. Then the eagle attacks me. It grabs me with its talons. It grabs me with its claws on my hands like this. So my hands are bound, and it hurts. I don't know if you feel pain in your dreams, but I feel pain in my dream. And so I have this huge eagle that's grabbing my hands and pecking at me while Carl is doing nothing, okay? 
And I do the only thing I know to do. I start slamming the eagle against the wall. I'm like, Carl! And I'm slamming the eagle against the wall, doing this. He's not moving. He's not helping me. He's not doing anything. And I finally kill this eagle, okay? Now, after I killed the eagle in my dream, I felt super bad about it for two reasons. One, it's against the law. That's why they call it being illegal. When you kill an eagle, it's illegal, okay? That's why it's called that. And I also felt super unpatriotic, right? To kill an eagle. I even made a joke to Carl in my dream. I killed the eagle. I'm like, Carl, I just killed an eagle. What am I, a Russian? That's what I said in my dream. I even make jokes in my dream. Now, the reason I felt bad was not because I was afraid that the government was going to arrest me. It was because I knew as a Christian, I'm supposed to uphold the laws. I'm supposed to walk in righteousness. That's what Paul means here in verse 5. He's saying, not only do you do this not to get punished, but because you are a Christian. Bear with me, we're almost done. Verses 6 through 7. For because of this, meaning because these people are in authority by God and they govern and it's good, for because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This text, by the way, allows you to pay taxes to the government. You are not personally sinning when you pay taxes to the government and they use it for some bad purposes. When you pay taxes, some of it's used for good purposes, some of it's for bad. This text commands you to pay taxes. Okay? The government has a right to that. If you, well, Zach, but I don't like how much I'm being taxed. Then vote differently. But you're commanded to pay taxes. You ever seen one of those bumper stickers that says taxation is theft? Not a biblical idea. Okay? Not a biblical idea. Now, we're here where it says taxes and then revenue, those are actually two technical terms in Greek, okay? That refers to direct taxes and indirect taxes. Direct taxes are things like a poll tax or a property tax, and indirect taxes are things like sales tax, toll roads, etc., okay? But here's what verses 6 and 7 are saying. They're saying, to whoever is in governing authority, honor them and give them their due. Honor them and give them their due. What does that mean? Here's what it means. To the IRS you pay your taxes. You don't cheat, you don't lie, you pay your taxes, okay? Uh, if there was a governor or a senator or a president or a representative, whether you like them or not, you shake their hand and you tell them that you're praying for them. If it is a police officer, listen to their commands. Listen to their commands. If they tell you to keep your, hand, their, your hands where they can see them, do it. If they say, get your hands out of your pockets, do it. They don't want to get shot or stabbed either. If they're treating you and they're, they're being a total jerk to you, you deal with it in a court. You deal with it later. You sue them later. You don't deal with it at two in the morning on the side of the road. Okay? If it's a judge, you obey court orders. Don't show up to visit your kids when it's not your visitation, whatever it might be. What this text is saying is, in whatever way you're called to honor the government, because God knows that governments will take different forms throughout world history, do that. Do that. Okay? Now, Let's get to the two big questions that you have been waiting for. Can a Christian disobey certain laws? That's the first one. That one's easy. The answer to that is only if it asks you to sin. Okay? The second question is the big one. Are there ever times where the government can become so corrupt that Christians can take up arms and rebel against the government? Let me give you a few... I'll give you a bunch of conflicting thoughts on this one. Okay? I used to hold that the answer was yes. I held that the government here in Romans 13 is to promote righteousness and suppress unrighteousness. So if they're not doing that, if they reverse those, then yes, you can rebel against the government. Then I changed my mind, and I thought, well, wait a second. This text seems to be saying even when you have an evil leader like Nero, he's put there in power by God, so you cannot rebel against the government. 
And since then, I've changed my mind again, okay? I've changed my mind several times. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, said that you can never rebel against the government like that. But Luther, what if we have a bad leader? Then you need to repent. If it's true that God is sovereign over who's in office, then when you have a bad leader, that is a judgment on your nation. And the way that you get out of that is not through revolution, but repentance. That's Luther. John Calvin hinted at something which I think is interesting. He said that a lower magistrate has the ability and right to sometimes rebel against a higher magistrate. Now, that's fascinating, okay? I don't know if you know this or not. Uh, America is not a direct democracy. We are a federation of states. We are a democratic republic. So what happens if uh, Texas and your leaders in Texas disagree with the federal government? That's an interesting thing to think about. When the government oversteps their bounds like they did with Roe v. Wade by saying people had a constitutional right to take away other people's constitutional rights of living, the states should have pushed back on that. And Calvin would say the states might be able to do that. We're commanded to submit to the governing authorities, but there are multiple governing authorities over us. Okay? My answer on this question is this. Okay? There may be times in extreme circumstances where it might be allowed, but the chances and the times that would be so extreme would be very, very, very small. To be able to answer that question, you would have to know everything the Bible says about government, everything the Bible says about justice and morality. You'd have to know everything that's going on in that political circumstance, and you would have to risk being wrong and being judged for that. Okay? So there might be a time to rebel. I don't know. I don't know. Romans 13 is not intending to give us that. Romans 13 is not meant to be a full-blown biblical theology of everything that we should think about government. It's just meaning to push on one side and say, obey the government. Do you know why the Bible doesn't give us rules for when we can and cannot rebel against the government? I'll, 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 I'll give you an example. What happens to a baby when it dies? Okay? Jeff wrote an excellent blog uh, on our blog about this called What Happens to Infants When They Die? Okay? The short answer is I believe that God saves them. I don't have any specific biblical text that says that. If God saves a baby, it's not because of that baby's innocence. It's because of God's grace. But I don't have any specific text that I can point to. To make that case... To make that case, what I have to do is I have to look at everything that the Bible says about God, about His mercy, about His grace, all of those things, and then I have to make the call and say it's more likely than not that God probably saves the child. Everybody with me so far? Everybody with me? Okay. Why is there no verse in the Bible that says every baby that dies is saved? Because think about how many weirdos, how many psychos would have arisen in church history and killed babies so they would go to heaven and think they were doing a good thing. God is too smart for us, okay? He's not going to give you that so that all of a sudden you start seeing the death of a child as a good thing. It's not a good thing, it's a bad thing, okay? For the same reason the Bible has not given us rules of when you can rebel against the government. You know why? Because we would only ever constantly be at war. If there was one verse in the Bible that says you can rebel against the government if this happens, all of church history would be people misinterpreting that verse and rebelling against the government all the time. That's why the Bible doesn't do that. For these things to keep people from going crazy in our depravity and our sin, what God does is He hints at things. He whispers things in His Word, but He doesn't give us that direct thing. We have to wrestle through it. We have to wrestle it out in community. We have to figure out the political situation. We have to wrestle through what the Bible does teach on these things. I'll end with a quote by Tom Schreiner on Romans 13 that says this, What we have here is a general exhortation that delineates what is usually the case. People should normally obey the ruling authorities. The text is not intended as a full-blown treatise on the relationship of believers to the state. Okay? Let's end with the gospel. Let's end with some good news. Woo! 
Woo, this is tough. Zach, you said something about violence and sharpening a knife, and I am freaked out right now. Let's talk about the gospel, okay? All of us have broken this command. All of us have rebelled against the government in some way. We've done so in our hearts. We've cursed the king. We've badly tweeted about the king. We have uh, sped. We have not worn our seatbelt. We've driven drunk. We've uh, stolen, whatever it might be. Okay? We have all broken this law, and because of that, we all deserve condemnation. You don't get to rebel against God at all, but because Christ kept the law, because Christ was righteous, because Christ, when he was reviled, did not revile back, he lived the life we should have lived. Christ not only was walking in righteousness, but he was keeping the Mosaic law, and he was paying taxes and these kind of things. Christ is our righteousness. He has been righteous on our behalf. We have all failed. He alone has been righteous. The God-man who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Who has gone to a cross that we might be forgiven and who is now the true king. Okay? The true king. If you don't know Christ, my encouragement is to know him. Repent of your sin. Ask him to save you. Bow the knee. Maybe you hate authority, but maybe the reason you hate authority is because you've only seen it used poorly. Maybe today you realize that Christ is the first one who uses authority perfectly. Perfectly. Let's pray as the men helping serve communion come up to pass up the elements. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for even this text this morning. I pray that you would help us in this. This is a difficult topic. I confess, even in studying this and preparing for it, I still have a lot of questions. Some things are still pretty murky to me. And so I pray that you would give us clarity around your word. We thank you for this. We uh, pray for those that are in uh, governing authorities, whether we like them or not. There are some that I like and some that I don't like. And so I just confess that in my heart, but my like of them is irrelevant. You've put them there, so would you help them? I pray for our governmental leaders who are not Christians. Would you save them? I pray for uh, whether they're Christians or not, that you would help slow the decay in our society, that you would help... uh, Uh, help bring in waves of righteousness. We love you. We thank you. We want to ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.